That's a good girl. Come on, let's go listen to Hound Sounds. Come on. You're listening to Hound Sounds, telling stories great and small of dogs around the world. Hound Sounds is supported by Lily's Kitchen, who make proper food for dogs. Hello, I'm Kate Vile. Huskies are exceptional dogs who ran expeditions across the North and South Poles for over a century. Chris Edwards, a geologist, used huskies in Antarctica in the 70s until the British Antarctic Survey changed to using mechanised vehicles with tragic consequences for the dogs. In Husky Man, Chris tells his story to Kate Bland in his home in Inverurie, near Aberdeen in Scotland. My name is Chris Edwards. I live in Aberdeenshire now. I started my scientific career as a geologist with the British Antarctic Survey back in the 70s, having graduated from Glasgow University and then just spent two and a half years in Antarctica. And I didn't really have any concept of how you get from one part of Antarctica to another. Most people's idea of Antarctica is a big flat white sheet of ice and that is in fact not the case in the parts which we were visiting, the Antarctic Peninsula particularly. And nobody teaches you how to drive dogs. You arrive on base and suddenly they say, well, there's your nine dogs, away and do a good summer's work. When I say dogs, I mean huskies, and we're talking about 30 to 40 kilos of a fairly sizable dog. The base I was on was a small island about half a mile long, quarter of a mile wide, accessible obviously from the sea from a point of view of, of getting stores and so on from the ship. The dogs were kept somewhat away from the base, primarily from the noise point of view. You didn't want dogs right outside the house howling and so on. Huskies don't bark, they howl. And it's a wonderful evocative sound of Antarctica generally. I've seen photographs of Captain Scott's expedition where they built individual kennels for each husky. A husky would rather stand or sleep on top of the kennel rather than in the kennel. Huskies are designed to be outside. So the dogs were actually kept on clean bits of snow, which happened to be on the surface of a glacier just adjacent to the island. And we could get up from the island, up a snow ramp onto the surface of the glacier. There was no crevasse, or there were tiny little crevasses, but nothing dangerous. Periodically, you would bring dogs down to the house for a whole variety of reasons, more for entertainment more than anything else. And certainly if we had pups available, you would bring them into the house. And that was always great fun, you know, just to see pups uh, marauding around. And of course, they would get hot because they weren't designed for indoor, you know, heated accommodation. They would just go to sleep eventually. (laughs) While we were on base, we would be feeding dogs seal meat. And the seal were acquired, if you like, or shot while the ships were down during the summer sometime. And for 150 huskies, we were having to shoot about 500 seals. Now, these were crab eater seals or Weddell seals, of which, you know, as far as crab eater seals are concerned, they're estimated to be about 40 million. But away from base, you couldn't carry you know, lumps of seal meat. So we had a preparation, a compressed block of meat and cereal and fat, and we would feed the dogs these one-pound blocks. I think the regime was one one day, one the next day, and two the third day. And even on that diet, they actually gained weight sometimes while they were out working in the field, and that's working eight hours a day. So it was quite a good preparation. During the winter where we were, we were about 68 degrees south. It was too dark in the winter. We'd only about have about two hours of twilight 
in the middle of the day. But in the spring and the autumn, we would go away for trips away from base in the, sort of the relatively local area, 30, 40 miles from base. But during the summer, we left base at the end of August and didn't come back to base until the middle of February or thereabouts. So you're away from base for about five months, and that's living in a tent with one other person. Each of us had nine dogs, so we had two teams, two men, one tent, and that was us. Each dog had its own individual harness made of a cotton webbing material, which we called lamp wick. So each driver had to make a harness to fit each individual dog. So you would make up a rough harness and then you would take it to the dog and making sure they're all snug and the harness fits correctly. Because, you know, particularly out in the field, if you're out in the field for three or four months, the dog might lose weight and you might have to adjust the fitting of the harness so it fits better. And the neck loop goes over the head and then the two leg loops. So you're very close to the dog, you're picking up the front paws. It's also an opportunity to see that dogs are not getting injured or not suffering in any way, because that's your lifeline, they're your friends. You have to look after them and they will look after you. The process in the morning would be out the tent, get the harnesses sorted out, harness up each dog. The dog would be led over to the trace and clipped on. So once you've got your nine dogs, uh, it usually was nine dogs as far as we were concerned, clipped onto the trace, then you would take out the anchor, if you like, from the front of the trace, and that gets all the dogs excited. And then you hope you make it back to the sledge before the dogs are revving away and pull the anchor out of the sledge before you were actually ready. The teams were mixed. Inevitably, you couldn't have all bitches or all dogs. In general, and I hate to say it sometimes, that the bitches were more intelligent than the dogs, and they were also tended to be lighter. So you would tend to put the lighter dogs towards the front of the team and the heavy dogs, the brawn, if you like, nearer to the sledge so that they could give an awful lot more power just to maybe to unstick a sledge or something like that. So the lighter, perhaps the more intelligent dogs were put forward and that then gave you some directional control. There's no steering wheel on a sledge. It's all done by voice commands. And so you had to have a dog that would respond to very simple commands, basically left and right and you had to identify the dogs that they were responding to those commands, and then you would tend to move those forwards. But the heavier, more powerful dogs tended to be back towards the sledge. Every dog is an individual, and you could pick up traits. I mean, the whole idea was that the dogs would be harnessed and they would be pulling the sledge, but some dogs were less inclined to pull too much, and you would be able to recognise that, and you would maybe chastise them for it and uh, shout at them, and. You could tell the dogs that were putting their little heart and souls into it and the ones that weren't quite uh, pulling to the best of their ability. And in that instance, you would maybe move them back near to the sledge. As long as you were moving fairly frequently, the dogs were quite happy. The dogs get bored, essentially, they get bored. Even when you're travelling, if you think of a dog's uh, eye level, it's only half a metre, a couple of feet, something like that, above ground level. And so certainly when we were travelling up on the Antarctic Peninsula Plateau, you're up at five, 6,000 feet, pretty flat and featureless. You might have mountains way, way in the distance, but dogs get bored. There's nothing to look at particularly, and so you have to keep them amused. And you can see when they get bored, the tails start to droop, the whole attitude of the dog changes. And so what you would do to try and stimulate them, you would be trying to jolly them along by saying, you oh, know, come on, up, 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 you know, go. And that might be fine for once or twice, but we also resorted to singing silly songs, making funny noises, and the dogs would turn around and say, what are you up, boss? You know, what's going on? And, and you could see the ears go up, the tail would go up, and they would trot along quite happily. 
You're listening to Hound Sounds, telling stories great and small of dogs around the world. Hound Sounds is supported by Lily's Kitchen, who make proper food for dogs. I have photographs which I think I probably sent back to my parents just to let them know what I was doing, but obviously some of my favourite dogs as well. We have Andy, who's a very classic husky with short pointed ears and a very curly tail and a very, very thick fur. I also have my lead dog, Isoldi, which I trained up from a pup to be an extremely good leader, even though I say so myself, but she was my favourite dog. And I used to take her onto the rock when I was going on to geologise, but uh, I had skis and I could get across the crevasse, which always invariably separates the moving ice from the ice that's fixed to the rock, and that's called the Bergsrund, but I couldn't carry her across so I used to pick her up and throw her across at this relatively small crevasse but she's a dog that was weighing 30 to 35 kilos so it's not a simple thing to do but she accepted it after I'd done it a couple of times then she realized that she wasn't in any danger by being thrown across she would scrabble around and I would put my rucksack down sometimes take my jersey off and while I was away geologizing mapping and collecting samples and so on she would just go to sleep Otherwise, she'd be following me around on the rock. And she was one husky that probably never had much in the way of nails because running on snow, your dog's nails tend not to wear down, but up on the rock, they would be wearing down. This is the general dog report for 1974-75. That was really towards the end of the British Antarctic Survey using dogs as the prime means of transport. The nature of the science was changing and just before uh, midwinter, we had this telegram down from the office in the UK saying that as of the end of that summer season, so that would be the summer of 74, 75, dogs would be effectively phased out and be replaced by mechanical transport. And my introduction here to this report says the news during 74 was that the base was to be closed and the husky population reduced to four teams meant the, the end of large-scale dog operations in Antarctica. Once we got over the shock, we then had to decide how was this cull, this removal of all the dogs going to be done, and which dogs. Well, obviously, you would tend to cull the older dogs and leave younger dogs, and of the younger dogs, which ones you take? You'd take the heavier ones or the lighter ones, or all these decisions had to be made. And it was an awful trauma for everybody because you always had your favourite dog. Every driver would have had his favourite dogs, and the thought that this was going to be the end in a matter of a few months' time you just had to make the best of it. I don't remember all the details, but when I decided, and it was probably me that made the decision that I knew how and when and which dogs had to be done, I then took it upon myself that I was going to do everybody else's dogs. I took it upon myself because I was the doggy man. I would not do my own dogs. The dogs that I had run and had been faithful to me I refused to do that. In fact, I got my colleague to do it. But what I did ultimately was I had all the dogs that I had selected flown to a base where they had no intimate relationship with dogs. They had one dog on base just as a pet dog. But I had something like 112 Huskies flown to a base where the deed was finally done. 
to give them a euthanasia drug would have been possible, but it would have taken much, much longer. Uh, I think out of all the 112 Huskies I did, I think only half a dozen were, were euthanized, and they were done back uh, on the base where the, the Huskies had originated, and that was really just to spare everybody the, the, uh, the sound of a gunshot, but otherwise it was a 45 revolver. It was all done on a very bloody afternoon. People say, well, why didn't you bring them back to the UK? There was never any question, what would you do with 112 Huskies? They're not domestic dogs. You couldn't bring them back and give them away to uh, people in, in the UK. Come 1993, all the Antarctic Treaty countries uh, made a decision that in Antarctica, as a continent for science, there should be no non-indigenous animals or plants, uh, except man, of course, uh, the biggest polluter of all. The thinking at the time was that dogs would pass on diseases, potentially focine distemper, to seals. But in reality, it was actually diseases were coming the other way. The vet that we had had down he was looking at a disease which we think had probably come from seals onto dogs' pads. This is the dog report which I wrote just after the cull of all the dogs, and these are the, the list of the 42 dogs which I left as this nucleus, potentially, of a breeding stock, which includes about 15 or so bitches and 30 or so dogs. And Esaldi is one of the bitches which I left. Uh, she was born in 1971. She survived after I left uh, until 1982, and then she was culled as being old by that time. That was 11 years old, and that applies to most of these dogs. So they would have gone on until about 11. Huskies get arthritis, and they become less and less uh, able to do what we would like them to do. The last day I was there, I spent most of the time just with her, by herself. I took her off the spans and just went to walk away from base and basically sat down quietly and thought about all the good times we'd had. You know, and I wasn't ever going to see her again. And so it was a love story, really. And I have photographs of her stuck on the wall and just of her staring out towards the camera. And yeah, it's just fantastic. In Husky Man, Chris Edwards told his story to Kate Bland. Music and mixing was by Chris O'Shaughnessy. Other Hound Sound pack members are Beth Clayton, Don Rorty and Andy Pritchard, and our editor is Kate Bland. If you think you've got a great dog story and you want to join the pack at Hound Sounds, please get in touch from wherever you are in the world. There are details on the Hound Sounds website, houndsounds.co.uk